Uh, we're starting Revelation 13 uh, this morning, but as always, if you have questions about Revelation 12 that you want to go over, this is your chance, or forever hold your peace, because I'll never answer that question again. <laughs> ever, ever, ever. Okay. All right, well, since you have no questions about chapter 12, tell me what happened in chapter 12. Since you've got it all figured out, and I can pass out a quiz to you right now. All right, so we've got a picture of the dragon that tells us about the devil. That's his his symbol in Revelation. And what's he doing? All right, tries to destroy... The child, which is Christ, fails, tries to destroy the woman. Israel fails. Uh, and chapter 12 ends that all that is left for him to do since his uh, power has been <clears throat> removed uh, is to try to make war on the Christians, on the people of God. You see chapter 12 end that way. So we talked about the dragon falling from, from heaven. And, of course, that's not literal. That's not a thing. That's just... His power has been completely debilitated now, which is, I mean, what's the whole New Testament telling us about what the power of the cross was? was destroying sin, destroying death, destroying Satan, destroying everything uh, that Satan had going for himself is completely eradicated at that point. So as you note that really chapter 13 then is a continuation of chapter 12 since verse 17 of chapter 12 says... Uh, that the dragon now is going to go make war uh, with the rest of the offspring, those who are keeping the commandment of God and hold to the testimony of Christ. He's now taking his stand on the sea uh, 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 and uh, on the sand of the sea in chapter 13, verse one, then has this beast rising up. So what I want us to be thinking about in terms of a big overview of where we're going in Revelation is everything that we're going to read about in these chapters is Satan's attempt to destroy the people of God. That's how chapter 12 is ending. This is the means by which he's going to do this. So it is somewhat fascinating as we go through chapter 13 to observe, well, how is he going to do this? What is this going to be his his method of attack? And I think it's somewhat surprising the means by which he he goes about trying to destroy uh, the people of God. So... Let's read the first 10 verses of Revelation 13, and then we'll talk about some of the things that are in it. Actually, all of the things that are in it. Revelation 13. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous, blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like bears, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it, the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed. And the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshiped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshiped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast and who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words. And it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. 
It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. And it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given to it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell on the earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with a sword, with the sword he must be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. In last week's <clears throat> homework assignment, I made mention to you that one of the things that is a, a really, really strong parallel are the descriptions that are found in Daniel 7 regarding this fourth terrifying beast and the beast that you see here. Um, I'm going to just go ahead and give you a, a lot of the connections that, that are, are given here because I think it's important to see that it's not just like, oh, well, there's a beast in Daniel 7 and here's a beast as well. You see them both coming out of the sea. You both see them having ten horns. You see them saying blasphemous words. You see them have the same duration of power. You see them making war on the people of God and being given the ability to conquer. Uh, when you go back and forth between the, the beasts that are described in, in Daniel 7, uh, you see a strong parallel. In fact, when you're in verse 2 of Revelation 13, you will notice the description of this beast. It says you have parts that are like a leopard and like a bear and like a lion. When you start the four beast description in Daniel 7, the first beast is like a lion and then the second beast is like a bear and then the third beast is like a, a leopard. It's all of the same animals that are being used here. So you have the, in this chapter basically John waving a flag and saying you have to know Daniel 7. <laughs> you, you have to make this connection which um, what we'd have done in the start of our study and observed a few times in our, in our study of Revelation is that Daniel is our key connector. It's the same scroll, it's the same angel taking the same stand, talking about the same events. And then these are the things that are being revealed that was told to Daniel, things that you go away will be, uh, you know, long after, after you're gone, Daniel. It will be down, down the road a time, times, and, and half a time. So I, I hope you've made some of those, those connections because I, I, I don't want to spend the class studying Daniel 7. That's the, <laughs> so I'm happy to make connections if there's questions, but I don't want to now do a whole thing on, on, on Daniel 7. I'd rather just observe the connections. All right, so what I would then end with this section is just simply say, um, it, as I've mentioned before, with chapter 13, it's one of the few un universal agreements is that this beast is the Roman Empire. Now, that doesn't mean they agree on when the Roman Empire existed. And what I mean by that is the futurist will read this and say, a new Roman Empire is going to rise up and do all these things in, in, in the future. So we've got to have all of the same things happen again. And I'm going to show you why that's not the case. But uh, just to be aware, at least there's agreement that the beast of Daniel 7 and this beast uh, are, are the same. All right, notice in chapter 13. Now let's suspend our time in these, these first four verses now that we have... Uh, this this connection. So tell me some of the characteristics about uh, this beast. Tell me some of the things that are said about it and what it's doing, uh, and that can start giving us a feel about uh, who this beast is and what it's attempting to do. Janet. The one that was rising out of the sea. 
Yeah. Good. Yeah, one of the things you have to see is that this beast is deeply connected to the dragon. So the dragon is, is the devil. That's what we're told back in, in uh, verse 9 of chapter 12. And so now with the dragon's desire to go make war on the people of God, the, the beast is going to be the means by that. Uh, and there is a, there's a lot of deep connections in these first four verses uh, about what's, what's being, being tied, tied together uh, about that. Tell me some other descriptions and, and points here, Debbie. <clears throat> Yes. Uh, and numbers like seven and ten are usually pictures regarding completion and perfection. So uh, horns are our power. That's just kind of a, a symbol that's used throughout scriptures. Is that so? Does does this this uh, beast have power? Uh, and uh, does this beast have authority? You've got heads and crowns and diadems, and so it, it, it's trying to conjure up. This is no small. Uh, entity of, of a beast that's coming along. It has complete power, complete authority. In fact, who's giving it power and authority and might? Yeah, Satan, the dragon. It's telling us specifically that the dragon is the one who, who is doing that. Verse 2, and to it, the dragon gave his power and his throne and his authority. So you're getting an image that Satan is working through this, this Roman Empire, through this beast to accomplish uh, it, its will. Now, you'll notice something that's really, really strange there is in verse 3. Verse 3 says, it, one of its heads has this, this mortal wound, but then the mortal wound is healed, which I hope you kind of catch the, you're like, it, was it fatal or was it not? You just said it was mortal, but then it turned out not to be a mortal wound. So it's a, it's a really interesting way to depict what the, the power of this beast. It looks like it takes a fatal wound, but does it die? No, it just kind of keeps on going. The fatal wound heals somehow and is able to, to able to keep going. What does that cause the people to do when you when you look at verses uh, verse three and as well as in verse four? Okay, so since it seems to take this fatal wound but doesn't die, but heals and keeps going. Everybody begins to worship the beast. All right. So let's take it out of the metaphors. What is everybody worshiping? Yeah, ultimately the Roman Empire. And notice the connection that's made uh, in verse verse four. It says they worship the beast saying who is like the like the beast and who is able to fight it. But then notice the beginning of verse four. They're worshiping the dragon. For he had given its authority to the beast. So you're getting a picture that the people of the world are worshiping the Roman Empire and saying, who is like it? So you get an, an image of, this, this will sound really crazy to think. They think that empire's never going to fall. Now, I know nobody would ever think like that about their own country. But that's what they think. <laughs> They're looking at this and going, it can't die. It's just going to go on and on and on. It took a fatal wound and still keeps going. Now, I'm not sure if we're supposed to particularly interpret that. We could. In the first century, after uh, Nero dies, 
It's pretty chaotic in the Roman Empire. If you've studied Western Civ and the Roman Empire, it's called the year of four emperors. They all just start killing each other. <laughs> and they all just kind of go back and forth. And it's just the year of four emperors. And they'd all just start, you, got, you could barely remember, like Galba, Otho, and Vitellius. It's what stops Vespasian's attack against Jerusalem. He's in the midst of attacking Jerusalem. Nero dies. Chaos happens. Vespasian goes, is told by his army, you should go be emperor. He goes, okay. So he goes <laughs> back to Rome, knocks out whoever was on the throne at that moment, and becomes the new emperor of Rome. And so I wonder if it might even be referring to you have a whole year of complete overthrow and chaos going on in the empire, uh, but then it establishes itself again. Vespasian reestablishes his, as his emperor, and then it's kind of smooth sailing for a long time in the Roman Empire after that of succession and who's, who's taking charge. So maybe that's what's going on. But either way, what the, the sense of the people is, is that they think that the Roman Empire is never going to fall. Now, I want you to notice the beginning of verse 4, what is interesting about that. Do you think verse 4 is saying, and all the people of the Roman Empire became Satan worshipers? You know, they're rolling around with uh, pentagrams. and All right, so explain what that means. Why would that be happening? Why does verse 4 say, so everybody's worshiping the dragon? When the whole of it says they're worshiping the beast. What is this trying to drive at? Well, certainly idolatrous, right? And we're going to get into a lot of that for sure. And they're blaspheming God. Which is uh, certainly what the beast is doing there in like verse 5. Uttering haughty and blasphemous words. All right. Yeah, go ahead. So many of the, the things that we're tempted to do are come from Satan. Okay. Sure. So it would be natural for them to fall yeah. into doing, to worshiping Satan by means of doing these things at the Roman Empire. I, I think that's the right right idea. Is if Satan is the power behind the beast, if it's the devil who has brought about the Roman Empire and is causing it to do the various things it's it's going to be described doing, and you are worshiping the nation, the empire, Roman Empire, and saying. It's amazing. It's great. We're going to do whatever it tells us to do. We're going to participate in everything it says. Then ultimately, who are you worshiping? Satan, because he's the one behind it. So I don't think this is saying, and then all the Roman Empire all went, ran around becoming devil worshipers. Actually, it's something a little bit far more sinister. If you worship your world nation, you're worshiping Satan. Because he's the power underneath it isn't that interesting (laughs) now that's what satan is doing to get people to follow him he's going to get people to give their allegiance and power and worship to the nation and if you give your allegiance and your power to the nation then he's saying i've got you you're worshiping me now you, I, I've got you where I want you. You're not worshiping God anymore. You're following what the nation says 
is right. You're following its ways, its customs, its cultures. Julie? Right. Or well, they said it, denominational or whatever. You know, is when you start going away from what God said, yeah. that's very scary. And then they don't see it that way, but it really is that way. That's right. You see it in just the mindset of the people I work with, you know, where they all claim they're Christians, but, you know what I mean? It's not it's scary. It's it is. It is. It really is. Well, and Satan wanted this wage war against the Christians, and that's what they wanted to do. Yeah. As well, is they fought against them, so they worshiped the Satan, and they didn't right. like doing that. That's right. Can I ask a question about this, too? The heads were blasphemous names. What exactly does that mean? That the verse in verse one that, that on its heads are blasphemous names. I think it's representing what's being described in, in verse four and verse five. That this this beast stands so contrary to God that it blasphemes everything about God, about God's people, about God's authority. I think it's going to be a picture of ultimately what the, the political nature of the Roman Empire was about because they say we're gods. Uh, we, they establish themselves as as the true. Yeah, and there's many of them that, that did that. Yeah, well, at least in the first century, it was done posthumously, and then it kind of began, hey, while I'm alive, you should, you should call me that. But, but even Augustus Caesar on his, his coin is a describing of the Son of God. He, he is described as Son of God, which it's hard for us to get, a, get our minds around, but if you think about what the first century world would look like, if you're a Christian running around saying... The real son of God is Jesus who was crucified and is now in heaven. When the people of the Roman Empire are saying, no, the son of God is the emperor on the throne. There's a cultural collision that's happening in what's being said. That's why in, 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 in Acts chapter 16, when Paul and his companions are in Philippi, You might remember that it's not a Jewish problem right there. It's a Roman problem. And what they say is what you are saying is unlawful for Roman ears to hear. Well, what's so unlawful about Christianity to a Roman ear? This. (laughs) This. (laughs) He's not God. (laughs) Jesus is son of God. There's one king and he's not the king. We have a true king. That's what's so much of a collision in the Roman Empire at that time. So I think this is the picture that's being given here. And, you know, I don't want to do a sermon out of it, but I just want you to just think about what Satan is doing is if he can get people to be so concerned about their physical country, he's got you because he's taken your eye off the ball because your citizenship's in heaven. Not here. And as soon as you get so bent out of shape about a physical country, Satan's got you. Because that's what he's doing right here. Is here you're going to make the Roman Empire so amazing and so powerful and so great and so luxurious that everybody's going to worship the beast. <laughs> and, the, and it tells us there in, in verse 4, they're worshiping the dragon. You're worshiping the dragon when you do that. 
And so very big warning that one of the means that Satan uses to deceive people is not merely through personal sins, but devotion to the wrong person. (laughs) Rather than being devoted to God, you're devoted to something here. And your concern is here and you're wrapped up here. And here's the devil going, perfect, got you. Mike? That's, uh, seems so Any study of of life and culture in the Roman Empire, the parallels to our life and culture are extremely strong. (laughs) We we do all of the same things. A life that is centered on entertainment and power and we're the best and we're in charge and nobody can beat us. And life in that nation was the best of what you could have. I mean, it's it's all there. It's 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 fascinating to, to look at. Uh, Charlotte and then Debbie. Charlotte, go ahead. Um, you want to say in the seven churches we studied about initially in Revelation, uh, they all had temples to these gods. It's right. It was. Uh, it was. In fact, I was going to show that later on, but but since you made this point, I, I hope it it'll I'll I'll throw it up there again next time. Um, I know that you won't be able to see this particular screen, um, I, but I, I took a photo of this this map when I was in, in Corinth, and the only thing I was trying to observe on here is in the small print up there. It says these are the buildings at the west end of the Roman Agora, and the Agora is the marketplace. This is just the marketplace on the west end of town. And so what I wanted to zero in on is just getting a picture. So here were, these are a, a reconstruction of what the ruins would have looked like. Uh, there's these seven or eight buildings that, that are all there. And what I'm going to show you is, so guess what all of these buildings, here's the, just the west side of, of Corinth. Here's the names of what they are. Number one, Temple F. Number one was a temple. Number two was a temple. Number three was a temple. Number four was a temple. Number six was a temple. Number seven was a temple. Number five was a monument to some guy. And number eight was to Poseidon. See the world? (laughs) That's the whole west side of Corinth. Uh, We don't appreciate how much emperor religion and paganism is just seeping into the Roman world at that time. I'll bring that back because I think that's important to the second half of chapter 13. But I, I had to take it. That's why you got my shadow of my fingers there. Like, because the sun was right behind me. I'm like, I can't get my shadow out of it. But <laughs> I was like, this is really amazing to look at. That It's just, oh, yeah, temple, 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 up, monument, temple, temple, temple. <laughs> like, wow, it's unbelievable that that's the way, that's the way things, <clears throat> that's the way things were back then. Oh, I, I got, I've got a library of photos of that going. And then here's all the ruins of those temples. There's none of it there. I, that was one of my big takeaways of that trip was God going, you think you have gods? Watch this. Psh, psh, psh. Nothing, none, of, none of them left. Vicki? Um, I'm sorry I was late, so I don't know if we missed this. But 
one thing in, in studying for this lesson, uh, and the way they put it, was that it has to do with the, the anti-Christians, and they're dealing with the government, and there's always somebody up yep. against God. So they were saying that one of the immortal wounds is, is the fact that no matter how many we kill, there's yep. always going to be somebody against God trying to have sure. authority over yep. them. No matter what we do, there's always going to be that beast that yeah. Yeah, a nation always thinks that it's 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 the greatest power and the greatest strength and the greatest might. And the problem is when the people buy into it. <laughs> and and that's the result of what you see in those first few verses. All right, any other questions in those first four verses where we go to verses 5 through 10? Uh, Debbie? It is a bad thing. I mean, it takes your eye off of it. You know, you see this going on, and people feel like they're yeah. really doing the right thing yeah. by being very patriotic. Yeah. And, and one of the great things we have is, should we be thankful to God for where we are? Sure. Yeah. Should we recognize that he's the reason why we have what we have? Should we understand that he's the reason the nation is the way that it is, and we've been able to enjoy all of it? Absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. I thank God. God bless America. I'll wave the flag for that. But... That's got to stop there. <laughs> Our citizenship's in heaven, and God's in control of its rise and in control of its fall. And we have to allow those things to be set to God, that God's at work. And he's bringing about whatever he's bringing about. And we don't understand what he's bringing about, but he's doing what he's doing. And, and, and we're okay with that. So grateful to be where we're at. And But at the end of the day, you, you can't worship here. <laughs> and that's what Satan does, is he just nudges you along a little further and goes... Well, go ahead and, and, and give your life to it. Go ahead and lay it down for that. And, and that's what you see them, them doing. And that's why I found verse 4 so so interesting, is it says that they worship the dragon. And you know, there's no evidence that they're running around as devil worshipers, you know, cutting heads off of chickens or something. And it's not what they're doing. They're worshiping the nation, and that is the satanic worship, that they've given themselves ultimately to the dragon and doing that. All right, look at verse 5. What are we being told about the beast? <clears throat> okay, so he's got, got power, right? And he's uttering haughty and blasphemous words, exercising authority for 42 months, opens its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name, his dwelling, that is... Those who dwell in heaven. You're just getting a picture that this nation has no respect for God. They just, if it's godly, they blaspheme it. If it's something about God, they blaspheme it. If it's about the people of God, they blaspheme it. Which is what you read back in Daniel 7. If you looked at that connection, the fourth beast is doing the same thing. It's uttering blasphemous words. It's doing the same thing. And as was asked earlier, there in verse 1, with the na blasphemous names on its heads, I think it's referencing what ultimately this beast does uh, there in verses 5 and 6, that it just stands against God. It's not for God. It's not working for God's people. It's not accomplishing God's will. It's trying to rebel against God's will, which a few weeks ago, a couple of weeks ago, if you were here on Sunday night for Ezekiel 38 and 39, Gog and Magog, that's your click-in right there, is that's... That's what's being described here is that here's a nation that stands against God and God then uses that to bring about its demise. And that's 
uh, what's being pictured here is this thing thinks it can do whatever it wants. It is all kinds of power and authority. Uh, and Satan is giving that authority. Think about Ephesians chapter 2 with that as well. Remember, you were told that with, with the devil, he is called the prince of the power of the air. He does have authority here. He is at work. He is, text says, in the sons of disobedience. You know, so he's not a, a sideline player just, you know, doing nothing. He's also behind powers and nations and leaders and, and doing these kinds of things as well. And so God has ultimate sovereignty over all of that. As you read in Daniel, he's bringing out the rise and fall of nations and kings. But Satan's going to be at work to use those nations and kings and rulers and powers to accomplish his will and try to get people to do wrong. And that's what's, what's happening here uh, that you see in verses 5 and 6. Now look at verse 7. This is, this is probably... One of the more chilling declarations. <clears throat> What's happening? Okay. Uh, and, and the terminology is to to make war, and notice it says and conquer. There's going to be a success to what the beast is doing. So you see that is that the, the Roman Empire was going to be a significant persecutor uh, of the people of God. And notice that verse seven describes uh, where is its authority ultimately? Is it only the city of Rome? It's going to be over everything. It's going to be a, a, an empire wide situation. So there's no getting away from what the, the Roman Empire is ultimately going to do. Just a little bit of, of history is that. It's not far into the time of the Roman Empire that historians observe that the greatest amount of rule in terms of territory, land that was owned, was done under Trajan. And then after Trajan is Hadrian, that's when Hadrian sticks his wall up and says, we can't defend these spots. We're just going to put our mark there and say we own it and then pull all the troops back. So land is at its greatest point throughout the world under Trajan and it's under Hadrian that you have the greatest economics uh, that are going on. The, the things are great in the Roman Empire as you start to move into the second century. So again, just getting a sense of when this verse says in verse seven that it just has this authority and power and the people are like, it is so great. Who can defeat it? It's never going to fall. Well, you can see why. In the first century, it's just getting stronger and stronger and stronger. It's getting bigger and bigger and bigger. It's conquering more peoples and more territories. It's becoming richer and richer. And so people are looking at this going, wow, it's unstoppable. We need to participate in the worldliness that the Roman Empire is telling us to because of, of what it's doing, Charlotte. That's right. I mean, all the way up in England. It's like halfway up. <laughs> so that's so how far that, that the power of the Roman Empire was. It was significant. Uh, and then notice in, in verse 8 what, it, what is happening. So underscoring again. So it, it's the worship, right? Everybody's all in with the Roman Empire. And there's only one group of people who are not supposed to be all in in verse 8. Right? Everyone whose names had not been written in the book before the foundation of the world in the book of life and the Lamb, they're the ones worshiping. I want you to start seeing this. 
There is going to be a line that is drawn in chapter 13 that continues to be talked about through this section where it's going to describe you either have worshipers of the beast or worshipers of God. And there's not a commingling. (laughs) It's one or the other. It is not an ability for both. And so a line is being drawn right here. It's either you are worshiping the beast and you're all in with it and you think it can't be stopped and it's amazing, it's powerful and it's our savior and it's going to help us and it's going to do everything for us. Or it's God and he's our savior and he's our help and he's going to help us and do what we need. Not both. And that's what you see verse verse 8 getting at is everyone who dwells on the earth who is not part of the people of God They're going to give their allegiance to it. Now, notice what that does in verses 9 and 10. What's the result? That's why I want you to see that these first 10 verses is setting up. The Roman Empire is going to be a problem for the Christians. That's what that setup is. The dragon has come in. He wants to make war on the people of God. He's angry that he's lost. He's lost to the, the child, Christ. He's lost in trying to destroy Israel. He's keeps being unsuccessful. So the end of chapter 12 says all that he's going to do is make war on the people of God. How's he going to do it? Rise up a great nation like the Roman Empire. Make it so great so that everybody worships it. Everybody thinks it's great, thinks it can't fall. And those who don't are going to have a problem. And that's what's being set up right here is that verses 9 and 10 and say, if anyone is to be slain with the sword then he's going to be slain with the sword. And if anyone's going to be captured, then he's going to be captured. And notice the end of verse 10. What's this supposed to mean for the Christians? Supposed to mean cave in and worship the beast, right? Because we don't want to die. Cave in because we don't want to be persecuted. No, notice this is a call for endurance. This is telling the Christians You better get ready because this thing is coming and it's not going to be good for you. It's going to persecute the people of God because the dragon is angry that he's lost. Okay, that's that's the imagery that's boiling up in these first 10 verses. All right, Debbie. Um, Just to clarify this in my mind, um, you know, when when the Roman Empire was attacked, they were attacked by Israel and surrounded Jerusalem. Everybody, yeah, that's right. They're included in that. Absolutely. That, uh, the Roman Empire in the first century does not have a strong distinguishing between physical Jews and Christians. That distinguishing begins to crystallize at the end of the first century with the destruction of the temple. Uh, in fact, we saw that in chapter 11 with the witnesses, if you remember, that it says, you know, the whole world's like, hey, we got rid of this thing. There's not really a grasp of this distinguishing of the two so much. It's beginning to crystallize. It becomes more clear l- later on. Well, I guess the, the non-Christians <clears throat> would be the ones who are caving in and yeah. possibly aren't being Well, and you're going to have Christians that are certainly going to cave in. I mean, that, the, <clears throat> what, what, I don't know that we're going to get to it, but when you read the second half of chapter 13, it's going to put this deep challenge on the Christian. Are you going to participate in the Roman activities 
and Roman idolatrous worship so that you can have a normal life, or are you going to not do that? And that's this call is that I'm sure there were many. Uh, Of course, of course. I mean, there's always a winnowing effect for any trial and difficulty, whether it be individual or globally, about who's going to stay strong and who's going to allow the difficulty to pull them away. Absolutely. If you think about where you're, you're, as you prep for your study next week and you read the second half of chapter 13, and just keep in mind how Paul has to write so much about the problem of idolatry and how the Christian deals with it. Uh, significant sections of 1 Corinthians are about this problem. How does the Christian deal with the fact that the only way to buy and sell in marketplaces, i.e. go to your grocery store, requires idolatrous activities. How do you navigate that? We don't have that problem. You don't have to pitch some incense to the president to go buy your meat in Publix. They did. They did. That's all my screens for later that we'll talk about next week. Uh, But they did. There's a reason why it was temple, 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 monument, temple, 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 temple. In the Agora, by the way, what's the Agora? The marketplace. That's, that's the market arena. That's where you did your business. That's where life was. And it's just surrounded by that. So that's why Paul's writing like that. Dathan, did you have to I'm seeing a sense of God's sovereignty as I read this. So the use of the word was allowed, allowed. and was given authority. Correct. I see that as... You know, the, the Thessalonians says God will send them a powerful delusion. Yep. So I see not only Satan working through the beast, but also God. But, but, I, but I think that Christians, the, those whose name are written in the, in the book of life, that the perseverance that is there is that those who have genuine faith will never succumb. That's right. They will, they will wash their robes, it says in the blood of the Lamb. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and so I, I think the, the, the question of, of whether one succumbs is really a question of whether one has genuine faith Absolutely. in God. I, absolutely. The belief that ultimately God is still sovereign, allowing what is happening to be allowed, and will ultimately do something about that. And again, I would reference that Gog and Magog language because Ezekiel 38 says... It's the Lord who brings up Gog from Magog to cause all these problems. And then God goes, all right. (laughs) And that's what's happening here. This nation's being allowed to do this, but you're going to get to chapter 17. God's going to (laughs) go, done. You're going to deal with that. And by the way, you're exactly right, because uh, chapter 14 of Revelation is going to take our eyes back to the throne room again. Where we're going to see the people of God, they haven't caved in, they haven't bowed the knee. You're, you're exactly right. Uh, Valerie, you had something for a while there. Well, maybe things have to hit a little point, but that's what I'm Okay, all right, sorry. It takes such a long to work, work everybody through, Charlotte. Sure. <laughs> right. 
And, and as I put on that first screen, you notice the time is 42 months. We've talked about that being as a t- limited or definite period of time of distress and judgment. And we saw that in Daniel 7, the beast is given authority for a time times half a time, 42 months, 1,260 days. You're getting used to this three and a half years. It's, it's all the same, the same flavor, same, same term, Vicki. <laughs> It is. And being that contentment and all the things we're working for as we study to learn, that's probably the biggest deal. We are going to be overcome. It is said, it is written. So just do what you do. That's what's so interesting about the book of Revelation is that in one breath, like verse 7, it says that this beast is allowed to make war on the saints and conquer them. And yet, how many times have we read in the book of Revelation who's conquering? We are. They're like, (laughs) so notice the idea is you will be conquered physically but that doesn't mean you've lost which is what's so hard is because we look around and go what's going on christians are being persecuted we're dying where's god why doesn't he do anything he must be asleep we better worship the beast because god's not going to save us you see the challenge And he's saying, this is the call for endurance. You're going to be conquered, but you're not going to be conquered. (laughs) You're going to go through this, but that's okay. God's still got you, okay? That's why chapter 14 is going to pan the vision back to heaven. Saints are around the throne of God. They're not dead. They're not lost. It's not over. They're continuing on. Jan, did you have a there? Yep. I think it's talking about that. I'll zero in on that probably a little bit more on the second half of chapter 13, but it is talking about that power to destroy the people of God. And I think, I think the little horn is the back end of this. So, yes, and hold on, <laughs> Mike. <laughs> Well, and that's the thing is, last year we we did some lessons about faith in the furnace series, and I'm bringing that back here pretty soon this year as well. I want to remind us of these things because I don't want, as culture turns more and more against God, for us to be like, well, this is a big surprise and no Christians ever had to go through this. No, the big surprise is that we haven't had to go through this. 
That's the big surprise. We have lived in a pocket of unusual culture where it's been socially acceptable to be a Christian. And it's sliding away. And so passages like this are going to be really relevant because it's going to be, now where's your allegiance? Are you going to try to avoid difficulty and give your loyalty to the beast? Or are you going to go ahead and suffer and keep your allegiance to God? And that all sounds real easy in our air-conditioned building. Oh, yeah, we serve God. But what if it's like what you're seeing here? Wait, when we read the next paragraph for sure, Kathy. right this allegiance to the way of our culture and way of life that's exactly right so what i want you to do for your for preparation for next week is we'll look at the second half of chapter 13 here's the big thing i want you to think about so it's going to describe another beast rising up and i want you to think about is this describing some completely different entity of some completely different nature Or is this sounding like it's part of the empire itself and what it's doing? So kind of listen to the language of what it says. Look at the description of it. What is it doing? What is it causing? Why is it doing it? And I think that'll be pretty enlightening to give you a sense of, okay, well, then what is this second beast? What is its relationship to the Roman Empire? What is it doing in regards to Christians? Because that's the whole thrust is the dragons making war on the people of God. So what, how is this beast doing that? That's what will be our, our talk for next week. All right, 15-minute break. <clears throat> and we'll reconvene at 1030 for our next hour. Thank you, everybody. Appreciate it.